Who this morning is still waking up? Anybody still waking up? Okay. I'll try to bring enough energy that uh, it'll hopefully transfer to you because I'm two coffees deep. I've been up since 6.30. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, but welcome to church this morning. It's good to be here with you. And we're starting a series called What's Up With Christians? Um, because there's a lot of questions that if you're really honest, if you're not a Christian, you're looking at Christianity, you're like, what's up with that? This is different than the world around us. Um, and if you are a Christian, at some point you have to wrestle with these questions yourself and go, okay, this is kind of a weird thing to believe. Like, what is the deal with this? How does this work? And so we're going to be hitting on topics like sexuality and hell. And this morning we're going to be talking about suffering and evil. So it's going to be a really lighthearted uh, message this morning. But I think it's going to be good. Um, and it's interesting because when we talk about suffering and evil, it's pretty easy to do that if you just kind of keep it like high level, 40,000 feet in the air. You're like, oh, yeah, people down there. Yeah, when somebody goes through something hard like cancer, a little kid has their pet die, or, you know, there's a genocide, like, that, that's hard. That's hard to explain. Um, but then when you're actually in the middle of it, when you personally experience evil and suffering in your life and you face it head on, it becomes very real and a lot more difficult. But I think it's important to be honest with it. Uh, so this morning... I'm going to share a little bit of one of my experiences around that that really impacted me. Not to make it about me, but hopefully so we can kind of enter into this experience together. That you, you kind of open up whatever your experiences are and you're ready to have an honest conversation about that and whether if there's a God out there, whether that God has something to say, something to do with that. Um, so in my life... Uh, Probably the hardest experience I had, just one, just one of the hardest experiences I had, one of the hardest seasons I had, started in October of 2019. And it started really in not a terrible way. In October of 2019, um, I was working as a youth pastor, so I'd work with teenagers and do programs for them. I came home from a youth group night, and it's like, you know, nine, well, 10 o'clock at night or whatever, I get home to the basement suite that my wife and I lived in in Surrey at the time. And I get home, and she's still up, and she's written, like, a cute little card for me. And, I, and she hands me this card, and I look at it, and I'm like, oh, this is cute. Like, there's underwear hanging on a clothesline that she'd drawn. I was like, this is really cute. Nice. And I go in to look at it, and she's like, Michael, <clears throat> look at it again. Look a little closer. I was like, okay, okay, interesting. And I look, and on the clothesline, there's, like, some boxers, and there's some... My brown panties. I don't know if we're allowed to say that in church, but it was on there. And then there's a diaper shirt. There's a little onesie. And I was like, oh my goodness. I get it. And I was so excited. Because up to that point, like I'd known for a long time that at some point in my life I wanted to be a dad. And I was really looking forward to that. And I was excited for it. And it was pretty amazing, like going, Okay, I don't know if I'm ready, but I'm excited. And so we start getting ready for having our first baby and start learning all the stuff you need to have a baby and all this. There's just so much stuff. I was like, our basement suite is starting to feel very cramped, not with the baby, but just with the stuff for the baby. 
And we found out in October, so um, coming up to Christmas, like I think I told, we told my parents at American Thanksgiving down in the States. And then we got to tell her family at Christmas. And then on uh, January, uh, we come back from visiting her family in Edmonton. And we went for an ultrasound. And um, you do the ultrasound, and sometimes it takes a little time to find the heartbeat. But at this ultrasound, they couldn't. And it's just horrible when you see them go and get the, the lab tech goes and gets the person in charge to come and talk to you. And we found that we lost our baby at 17 weeks. Um, Yeah, and it was one of those things where you'd always gone, you know it can happen, and you know it happens to other people, but then it happens to you, and it really messes you up. Um, and it was just the mo probably the most heartbroken I'd been in my life, of just looking forward to their life, and you don't realize it until, you ha until you're expecting, and then you're just like, you start dreaming about what they're going to look like when they hold your hand, and what they're going to grow up into, and what they're going to do with their life. And then you have all this hope, all this that you're looking forward to. And it's such a good expectation of life, and then it just gets taken away. And it feels like the most meaningless thing. Uh, it was one of those things where I was like, there's no, there's no meaning to it. There's no, oh, it was worth it for... No, it was like, why would I ever experience this hope to just have it ripped away and crushed and just get hurt by it? So, anyways, we're going through that grief and dealing with the process after that, which is incredibly hard. I'm walking with Morgan through that. And then it, that was 2019 that we found out we were expecting. So 2020, and it's March of 2020, and COVID comes along. And I've been at my first church. We moved to BC um, for me to pastor, be a youth pastor at this church. We've been there for three years, and the first couple of years have been really great, and there have been some changes in the leadership. I had sensed that there, things were a little less steady. And so about a week into COVID, um, I have the conversation of going, hey, yeah, we don't see you being a great fit here anymore. And you're like, but God's blessed what, God led us to move to BC here. All of our friends and family are at this church. Like, this is our life here. It's not just a job, it's our life, is this community. We've invested here. And it seems like God led us here, and he's been blessing it, and then it's getting taken away. So not only am I grieving this, like, meaningless loss, this meaningless hope to just be crushed, but I'm also going, like, God, why would you take me somewhere and seem to be leading here and then just take it away from us? Like, what's going on? Um, and so it was around that point that I was like, okay, I don't, like, I've had my reasons for believing in God, and I've followed God most of my life. But I don't know if they can hold up to this. I don't know if these experiences of evil and suffering, like, and just this, this I don't know if I'm going to have a real faith in God after this. Like, if I'm honest, I don't know if I believe. Um, it was kind of weird, because, like, maybe a week into that, I was like, okay, I need to tell my wife, like, where I'm at, and be like, I don't know if I'm going to be a Christian after, like, I don't know. And my job is to be a Christian, strangely, but like I don't know. I have to be honest. And I'm not sharing the story because I want because this is about me. I'm sharing the story because 
as much as when I was in the middle of it, I felt like I had an extraordinarily difficult experience. Um, it's incredibly common. We try to forget about it, we try to ignore it, but I think mo one of the most human things in life is to have those experiences, um, see evil pop up, see suffering come up in life, and just go, this doesn't make sense, I don't get it. And we try to work around it, we try to forget about it. We go, cancer happens to old people and I'm not old yet. Or this happens to those people but not me. Pe that, people starve to death in that country but I'm never gonna not have groceries in my cupboard, and then you do. And then you go, okay, well, why is God not providing for me? And in our life, it's really interesting because there's so many moments of incredible good and incredible joy, and we can associate that with such a good, loving God. Like, even like when you go out camping or stay at a cabin, and you look at the stars at night, and you look at the universe around you, and you're just like, this is awe-inspiring, this is beautiful. It feels like some power out there must have created this just to put us in awe and wonder. And we're like, this is so good. And there's those moments in life when you celebrate with friends, you have those friendships and those relationships where there's so much joy and goodness. You're like, this is, and you can go, man, there must be a good loving God that created this and put this into place. And then you have this tension with evil and suffering that comes up in life. And you go, what, what do we do with this? And You'd think maybe the Bible, if it's a book about God, would just talk about how good and loving God is and, and be like, yeah, that evil, that's not really a problem. But when you start looking through the Bible, it's interesting, because you start at the very beginning of the Bible, there's a book of Genesis. It, it describes God creating the universe. And creating the universe, and this universe, things were a little bit different. There were no blackberries with thorns on them. There was no animals trying to eat you, no coyotes attacking you, if you know what's going on in our town lately. Um, but the animals were all gentle and tame, and work was pleasant and good, and you had babies with no labor pains. Giving birth was actually a fun experience, which who knows, yeah, a painless experience. And there was no death. It wasn't, there was just life. And God created this amazing universe with humans at the center of it. It said, I created this for you to live good lives, to work and do good work and take joy in it and take joy in your relationship with each other and with me. And God would go for morning walks with humans. It was great. And that's chapter one. But by chapter three, pain and suffering has already entered the world. Humans have said, yeah, that sounds great, God. Your plan is awesome, but we want to try to see if we can figure out how to do this ourselves in a better way. And that choice brought pain and death and suffering into the world. It brought pain in having babies. It brought death and cancer, destruction, decay. It brought conflict between people, between people and nature. And so there's already this tension between God's good gift and evil and suffering. And you go, okay, so what happens next? And you jump forward in the Bible, and there's a book called Psalms, which is a bunch of songs that people wrote about God about, about 3,000 years ago-ish, give or take. And in these songs, you're like, oh, it's great. Kind of like the songs we just sang earlier, where it's like, God is so good. He's so faithful. Everything he does is so good, and he's so loving and kind for us. 
But then there's also some songs like Psalm 89, which, is, which we talked about this summer when we did a message, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, where the songwriter writes a song being like, God, you promised this, you promised that, you promised you'd protect us, you promised you'd take care of us, you promised you'd never leave us. And right now you've left us, we've been conquered by another nation, we're being oppressed, we're being abused. God, I'm pretty sure you're a liar, what the heck? Which, you've never probably thought that. you never had an experience in your life where you looked at God and you're like, God, I'm pretty sure you're a liar. What the heck? I definitely have. And then, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth. God sent his son to live as a human, fully God and fully human on earth for 33 years. And as part of his life, he died on a cross, taking the punishment of the sin and death that human breaking the curse that humans have brought in Genesis 2 and 3. And he said, I've overcome sin and death. I've overcome this destruction. I've overcome the grave. That whole Graves in the Garden song is about that. And you go, okay, so there's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more suffering. There's not going to be any more pain. We're not going to have any more of these horrible experiences in our life, right? And then you look forward, and the first followers of Jesus... In the first hundred years after he lived on earth, they were all in the Roman Empire at the time. And the Roman Empire was based on the emperor, Caesar, having all political power. But to make sure that no power got in the way of him having all political power as they conquered different nations and kind of adopted them into the empire, they said, not only is Caesar like a king, Caesar is also a god. And he's the god. So if we conquer you and your nation, and you have your own religion, that's okay as long as you're, you go Caesar's God over everything. But one of the really difficult teachings that Jesus taught when he was on earth was that he was over everything, even Caesar. And so the early followers of Jesus lived in this tension of believing that Jesus was king over everything. And what could have been a relatively harmless religion in the Roman government's eyes suddenly became a huge threat where they're like, nothing can have more power than Caesar. And so Paul, a leader in the early church, wrote to the followers of Jesus living in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. He writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Can anything take us away from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Because Jesus brought this message of God loves you so much. I'll even die for you. I love you so much. I'll go through death because I love you so much. And then next thing they know, the followers of Jesus are literally being killed simply for saying that he is God. And they're getting arrested, they're getting beaten, they're getting abused. And, some, and frequently they would get taken, and they wouldn't just get killed nicely. The Roman government would be like, hey, you know what, a good way to, like, we can kill two birds with one stone here. We can take care of, deal with these Christians that aren't submitting to the government, and we can entertain people by getting, throwing them in with some wild animals and watching them get torn to shreds. And so they were following Jesus, and yet they were experiencing not just the normal pain and suffering and evil of life, but they were directly experiencing the consequence of their faith being that they were getting killed 
So they've got a pretty legitimate question of, can this separate us from God's love? Are we getting separated from God's love for some reason? If we start to zoom out, it's an interesting question of like, you look at the world around you, you can see so much good, you see so much hope, and you go, maybe there's a God working amazing things in this world. But then you see the evil that's going on. You have your own experiences, whether it's sickness, whether it's life circumstances, whether it's your own struggles, whether it's your finances. You have different experiences that make you go, it doesn't seem like God has my back. It seems like he's letting me go through evil and suffering. When you look at around the world around you, you go, it seems like God doesn't have humanity's back. It seems like he's letting them down. You create, did God create us and put us here just to ignore us and just let us suffer? Or did God just put us here and now he's like messing around with us? Does he say he's loving, but he's really just trying to torture us? Or maybe God put us here, but maybe doesn't have the power to stop evil and suffering. I've heard that said a lot of times. Or maybe there's something going on in the bigger picture that maybe we aren't seeing. I think it would be good if we're going to come up with accusations against this God, which is fair to come with some accusations. I think it's a pretty fair thing to ask these questions. But I think it's fair to look at what he says about himself. So I want to spend some time in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we already looked at one passage in this, but this was written by Paul, a leader in the early church, Christians in the city of Rome. They were going through normal suffering. There's times that they didn't have money to buy food. There's times that you have sickness, and we didn't have modern medicine, so people died a lot more. And they're also being persecuted specifically because of their faith in Jesus. So Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 15. For God's... What? Where did I end up? Okay, I started in the wrong chapter. I went to 9. There we go. This makes more sense. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. And Abba is a random word. Abba was in the original language. And Abba was a word that a small child would use to reference their dad. It's like saying dada. You know when you're a small child and you look up to your parent and you're at the age where you say dada, it's so close, they have so much trust in you. It's saying we're so close to God that he's adopted us as his kids if we choose to be followers of him and let him adopt us. We can be so close to him that we call him Dada, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. Since we are his children, he has given us the rights and privileges of being his child. We're not, oh yeah, I'll call you son, but you don't get the inheritance. No, you get every privilege of being my kid. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share... His glory must also share his suffering. This gets a little interesting. It's going to point back to this later. And so Paul says this to the followers of Jesus in Rome. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. What we suffer now, what we suffer in our 60 to 100 years here on earth, is actually nothing compared to what's going to come. It can't compare to what's coming. And he starts to describe this and give us an image of this. 
For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. That's saying all creation was subjected to death and suffering and decay because of the choice of humanity. Not because creation chose it, but because humanity chose it for all of creation. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. That's interesting. What he's saying is we have the Holy Spirit, as followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of future glory. When we experience the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, when God does something supernatural in our lives and we go, God is so good. He brought healing to a relationship. Maybe he brought healing to my health in a supernatural way. When I prayed, he responded. I saw him being such a good father. It's saying this is just a small taste. This is a sampler. It's like when you go to the ice cream shop and they give you the little spoon saying, hey, here's a taste of what's coming, but you're going to get the whole bucket. And so... When we follow Jesus and we start to see God's goodness as he works in this world, we go, this is a foretaste. This is a sampler of what's to come. But at the same time as we're getting the sampler, we're also in the pains of childbirth. If you've ever been close to somebody or you yourself have gone through childbirth, you imagine somebody going through childbirth and you hand them like a little sampler of some ice cream and how they're going to respond to that. They're going to throw it at you, probably. If they're not screaming already, they're going to start screaming at you. It's saying our life here on earth is actually expected to feel like the pains of childbirth. It's expected to be overwhelming pain. And I can't describe that pain because I haven't been through it. I don't plan to be through it. But from what I can pick up, an overwhelming pain and suffering. One that in the moment you can't say this is worth it. If you're like, hey, does this feel worth it? You're like, no! At this moment, this life on earth, when someone close to you dies of cancer or you're walking through your own health problems, do you go, oh man, this feels so worth it? No! It's horrible. When you see meaningless pain and suffering, when you see somebody go through abuse and the way that weighs on you, is it worth it? No! You want to scream out as if in the pains of childbirth. It's not. It's horrible. But saying all creation, particularly humans, our life on this earth is as if we're in the pains of childbirth. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We long for the curse to be broken. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. God has adopted us as his kids, and yet our experience right now doesn't feel like it. We get a little bit of the loving father, and we get a lot of life is just really hard and difficult, and there's evil and suffering in it. And so we look forward to when we experience the full privileges of being the children of God. We are given this hope when we are saved. And jumping forward to verse 28, this is the crux, this is the conclusion of what Paul says. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And maybe you've heard that. God works all things together for good. 
If you've ever had somebody say that to you at the wrong moment, you're like, if this is good, then screw God. Or whatever words you want to use. I felt that. When I built up so much hope, I looked forward to the life of my baby. I never got to hold their hand. I was like, if there's a God out there and this is his goodness, then he can whatever himself. When I felt like God had led me to move to a different province, to invest in a community, invest in people for three years, and that that was his plan for me, and then it felt ripped away, I felt rejected, I was like, if this is your good plan for me, then I don't want any part of that. You're working this for my good? Yeah, right. But when you think about good, when you think about good, I think that image when God says, I'm adopting you as my small child that calls me, that I want, like, you can call me dada. Like, you know when you're teaching a kid to talk and you're just trying to teach a mama and dada? Because they can't even talk yet. They can't even communicate yet. Like, their brains are at, like, little tiny kid level. And you're like, figure out how to say dada before mama. Right? Right? But you think of their definition of good when they're that size. And I can tell you the definition of good when you're a small child is candy. For some reason, at least if you're my kid, it's mud and filth and sticks and picking up dog poop with your bare hands for some reason because it's fun. Don't ask me why. But anyways. And, definite, and good definitely does not include nap times or bedtimes, right? And then you think of a parent's definition of good. And a parent's definition of good looks like eating at least a few green vegetables, some balanced nutrition. A parent's definition of good looks like um, taking baths and some cleanliness and not being sick all the time, hopefully. A parent's definition of good looks like definitely taking your nap on time and maybe even going a little bit extra long so we have a few minutes. Because a parent is looking at the big picture and they're like, I want my kid to grow up to be this amazing, strong child that does amazing things in the world. I want them to grow up and be like me except better. And God created humanity in his image. He says, you're like a small child. You're like me, but you're not there yet. I want you to grow and mature into that. And it's a very imperfect image, but I think it's a good way to start to maybe give, see what God's saying here. Because before modern science, the odds of a child making it out of childhood were very low. Like birth was dangerous, being an infant was dangerous, being a kid was dangerous. You often die of these, what we now consider little harmless diseases. But the reason they're little and they're harmless now is because when your baby's just a little baby, you have to take it to the doctor's office and get them their immunizations. And my wife hates it so much that she makes me go with her so I can hold our kid. Because your baby that's up to this point always just, whenever they cry, you show up to comfort them or give them some food or help them fall asleep or give them a toy. Like, you are the joy of their life. They light up when they see you. This child that has so much trust in you, all they've seen is your goodness. You have to hold them while they get stabbed with a needle. And they've never experienced a pain like that. You're like, it's just a needle. But they've never experienced that before. They're like, what is this? And they're looking at you going, why is this happening to me? 
How could this happen? Because you love them, you want to hold them close even as they're going through it. But you can't, there's no, they don't have any context. They've only lived for a few months. They haven't lived for years. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand that the suffering is actually for their good. The suffering is actually part of being, making sure that they live a great life. They're just looking at you going, what's going on? And hopefully you've built a trust with them, with the little things, that even when they don't understand what's going on with that pain, even though when they don't understand why they're getting a shot, they go, I don't get it, but I can see my dad's loving face looking at me. And so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him with this thing that I don't get. The only way I can explain God with evil and suffering, the only thing that's never made sense to me, is that's us. That somehow in the big picture, in a way that we're never going to understand with our human brains here on earth, that the evil and suffering of this world, the most horrible things that we go, that is horrible. Like, we can't explain it. That God is working good in it. And he's going in the big picture, in eternity, the 80 or so years you get on this earth, the suffering you go through is somehow part of bringing the fullness of life and the fullness of God's goodness into the world and for humanity. I'll be honest, like it, I, it's one of those things I don't feel. But when I've seen his goodness, when I have those moments and he shows up and he's such a loving father, I go, you just keep doing this. You just keep showing up as this amazing, loving father. So somehow if you say, trust me, maybe I can trust you. Maybe if you've proven yourself trustworthy in these in the small picture and these things I can see, then maybe somehow in the big picture you're actually working a better good than I could imagine. But it's hard. It's really hard. Because I spent a few weeks not sure if I was going to be a Christian. I was like, I spent a few weeks going, I don't care if this is good for my life or bad for my life, but this doesn't make sense to me. And I wrestled with it, and that's kind of what I ended up walking away with. Going, God... And the small picture of pastoring and our lives, being here, I can tell you, I can start to say I would never want to go through it again. Some of the feelings of rejection and hurt, losing community and friendship that I had that came with the transitions. But I'd never be able to be the pastor I am here for you now if I hadn't had to go through that suffering, that loss of that church. That part makes sense, and God's built trust with me there. I've gone, okay, you're a good father. It was hard, but it was worth it. You're a good father. Would I choose to go through it again? Probably not, but it was worth it. But then when I came to losing my baby at 17 weeks, losing another baby after that, I don't think it's ever going to make sense to me on earth. Nobody could give me a good enough reason that I'm like, okay, yeah, that was worth it. No, it's horrible. But I keep running into this loving father that keeps showing up and showing his love in supernatural ways that I'm like, I can't shake that. I can't not believe you when you say, trust me. This, I'm, it's going to be good. And somehow, you don't get it now, but somehow, someday, you're going to look back on that. And you go, yeah, those 80 years that you lived on this earth, that was hard. But I can't even compare to the life I've given you now. It came in compared to the life that I brought through that. So, 
I really believe that when we look at pain and suffering and evil with God, we can assign different answers to it, and we can just be like, this is why, this is who you are. Or we can go, okay, God, who, I trust who you say you are. You've proven yourself to be such a good father in so many ways that I'm going to trust that even this much bigger picture that I don't get, that you're doing something way bigger and better. And we do that, it's a trust that leads to hope. This message was inspired by a few different books that I read as I've wrestled with this topic. Uh, there's a book by C.S. Lewis, another one by Tim Keller, and another one by Mark Clark. Uh, they're actually in the lobby if you want a copy of one of them. But C.S. Lewis wrote a short book, Grieving the Loss of His Wife, and just walking through the grief of losing this wife, his wife. And near the end of it, he goes, I got things in the wrong order. Because we naturally look at things, when we look at pain and suffering, we look at ourselves first and we go, here's my experience of evil and suffering. And wow, this is really bad. And then we look and we go, oh, look at the world around us. We go, man, the world around us, there's a lot of evil and suffering that other people are going through too. And then finally we look at God and we go, God, how, how did, can I fit God into this picture? Can God fit in that picture that I just painted? And then we go, well, and things get warped. That's where we get cynical and jaded. That's where we get, and we go, I just have to pretend there's no evil and suffering because God doesn't have an answer for that. That's where we just have what I call toxic positivity of just pretending that evil isn't happening. But then if you flip it around and you start by going, okay, I'm going to look at God first. I'm going to look at his answer first. I'm going to look at what he says first. And how he says, I'm this loving father, and I'm trying to give you a foretaste. I'm giving you, trying to give you opportunities to see in the little things how good I am and how much I love you. So that you can trust me in the big picture and these big things that won't make sense in this life on earth. Then you look out at the evil and the suffering in the world around you, and you go, God is a father looking with a broken heart that wants to comfort us as we cry, as we go through this. He also wants to start to bring healing to this already. So how can I be a part of God bringing healing and love into these situations of evil and suffering? And that leads you to looking at you and going, how can I be a part of it, right? And so if we want self-pity, we look at ourselves and then we look at the world around us and then we look at God. If we want hope, if we have a trust that leads us to hope in God, then we look at God first and figure out our trust with him. And then we look at the world around us, and then we look at how we can be a part of what he's doing. I want to close up by reading a passage in Isaiah. Because it's one thing to have God say, hey, trust me, trust me, trust me about this. It's another thing to really hear what he says. So in Isaiah chapter 65, starting at verse 17, God says, look, I am creating a new heaven a new earth. And no one will even think about the old one anymore. God says, look, I'm going to create something new like what this, but we're never even going to think about this again. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. And in this passage, he's speaking to people in their context. Jerusalem was a symbol of the city where the followers of Jesus would live. He's saying, I'm creating a city for the People, my children. 
as a place of happiness, where people will be a source of joy. Not just we will have joy, but we will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem. I will rejoice over my people and delight in them. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. I'm creating a future that does not need pain and sorrow and crying and weeping anymore. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will we face miscarriage and cancer and death where we know death doesn't belong and it's just evil. No longer will people be considered old at 100. That'll just be the start of life. Only the cursed will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. We know as humans that we're created to live in a universe where death doesn't win, where there is no more death, there is no more sorrow, where we don't just experience joy, but we bring joy. We're created to live in a universe where work isn't a hard thing we do to get by, but it's actually what we are made to do. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For they are people blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. We won't just get a foretaste of God being a good father, but we will live in the fullness of him being a good father and giving us everything we need before we can even say the words. Because he loves us so much. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. We're going back to Genesis 1. We're not in Genesis 3 anymore where wolves and attack people, but we're in a place where they will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snake, the snake that brought, that symbolizes death and humanity's curse, will eat dust. It will eat dirt. Because what's dirt? Dirt is death and decay. Death will eat dirt. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. It's a big ask to have this trust. I don't want to just be like, hey, just pretend that God's good and just, just fake it till you make it. But I want to encourage you to be honest and go, God, you say you're a good father. You say that you love me. Give, if I am struggling to believe it, give me a foretaste of your goodness. Give me a foretaste of of what it's like to experience your love as a good father so I can trust you in this experience that doesn't make sense right now. So that we don't live lives of cynicism and being crushed by the sin and the suffering and the brokenness and the death of this world. But instead that we'd actually live lives shaped by hope. Because when we have hope, we live our lives differently. You can give two people the same prison sentence, but when one knows their family's waiting for them, and looking forward to them getting out. And the other's been told that their family has all died. The one that their family's all died, they're going to live their, that prison sentence so differently than those that have hope. The one that has hope is getting ready for that. The one that has hope is going, what can I do to invest in this right now? How can I write letters? And for us, God says, I'm giving you hope. I'm giving you something to trust in me in the small picture so you can trust me with the big picture to even be even better. So you don't just go, oh, I'm going to wait for the future. I'm going to wait for God's goodness.
but I want to be a part of God showing his love to this earth right now. I want to participate in that and live with hope. So I'm going to pray for us right now, because this is a lot. God, I know that so many of us, this message has brought out some of the things that we try to ignore, some of the things we try to shove to the back of our mind because it's hard and we don't get it. And they're questions we're not sure if you can answer, God. Ones that we're scared to bring to you because we just don't know what's going to happen and whether you're going to fail us. But I pray that you show yourself to be such a good, good father. That we'd feel like small children, that even when we go through painful moments and we don't understand what you're doing in it, that we can look into your eyes and we can say, God, you've been so good, so good to me. You love me so much. I've seen your goodness so I can trust then the big picture, you're going to be even better than I can imagine. And that you would empower us to live lives of hope right now, that we look first to you and then to the world around us, and finally, we look at what you can do through us. In your name, amen.